This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. I'm Max Flight, and this is episode 764 of the show where we talk aviation. Now, last week, we returned to our regular format with co-hosts and a guest, but the Labor Day holiday falls on our Monday recording day, and we traditionally take the week off and publish some pre-recorded interviews. So this episode, you'll hear conversations from this year's EAA AirVenture Oshkosh and from the Spurwink Farm Fly-In and Pancake Breakfast. At AirVenture, Hillel Glazier spoke with the CEO of Cirrus Aircraft and two young pilots who each individually flew around the world solo. And from the Spurwink Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In, our main man, Micah, talked with a retired air traffic controller, a 56-year-old student pilot, and a recent high school graduate who now works at an FBO. But before we start, two shout-outs. The first annual Latin Aerospace Industry Expo, presented by United Airlines, will be held on September 15, 2023, at the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Kissimmee, Florida. Southwest Airlines is also a sponsor. Now, the Legacy Airlines will attend for meet-and-greets, so this is an opportunity for pilots and those in the aviation industry to come and network. There's also going to be many exhibitors. The expo, it's organized by the Latino Pilots Association, or LPA. That's a nonprofit organization. It was founded in 2015. Their aim is to inspire, develop, and support the Latino aerospace and aviation communities and eliminate socioeconomic barriers through representation, financial support, education, and mentorship. The LPA has over 1,900 active members. This event also kicks off National Hispanic Heritage Month 2023 that runs from September 15th through October 15th. So for more information, visit the LPA website. That's at www.latinopilot.org. Now, the expo proper is September 15th, but there are activities the day before and after. We'll have links to more information in the show notes for this episode. That, of course, is airplanegeeks.com slash 764. Next, the Whirly Girls Scholarship Fund announced the opening of the 2024 scholarship season. Deserving female aviators and maintainers can apply for over $500,000 of helicopter training and educational scholarships. Now, these scholarships advance the helicopter industry by strengthening the talent pool and increasing diversity. Applications are available online, and they're due by October 1st, 2023. Now, the scholarships will be formally presented at the Whirly Girls Annual Banquet. That's on February 25th, 2024, at the HAI Heli Expo in Anaheim, California. And if you'd like more information about all of that, just visit whirlygirls.org. Okay, now here's Hillel Glazier from EAA AirVenture Oshkosh. First with the CEO of Cirrus Aircraft, Sean Nielsen. Hillel spoke with Sean last year, and he gets caught up on all things Cirrus. Here it is. 
This is Hillel Glazer, innovation and entrepreneurship correspondent for the Airplane Geeks podcast, recording from AirVenture 2023 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, with another installment of what I like to call Beyond the Press Release. And I am at the Cirrus Encampment on the grounds of AirVenture and have the pleasure once again of speaking with Sean Nielsen, CEO of Cirrus Aircraft. Sean, welcome again to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, you've got a lot going on, so thank you so much for making time to speak with me. You're no longer an AirVenture newbie. Nope. This is uh, fourth or fifth year now, yeah. Yeah. So how's it how's it going for you this year? Good. Good. I mean, the, the booth is packed. Uh, um, the orders are flowing in. So this is uh, turning out to be another great Oshkosh. So, so uh just excited to be here with new products and new programs. Yeah. yeah speaking of which, I attended the press conference earlier this week. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed with how Sirius is extending the concept of innovation beyond just the aircraft, but also to how you're growing the market. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the latest market-facing programs that you're putting in place? Sure, sure. So um, one of the things we, we uh, introduced here uh, was our private pilot program. Um, or the PPL, if you will, but we call it PPP uh, for the you know for programmer uh, instead. Um, and essentially, we have for the last three or four years um, created our own syllabus. So you can essentially get your private pilot license with us. You still have to go to the FAA exam and so forth. But but we have now created like end-to-end you know content. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of uh, the reasons, if you uh, you know are familiar with Sporties or Kings and so forth, great you know learning platforms, but what they all have in common is every module might be different, meaning like one module might be with Cessna um, as, as the airplane in the background or the avionics that you see. Another one might be with a Piper and Diamond or whatever the case may be. Some of it is Cirrus, which gives you sort of a broad understanding, obviously, and it's good for your, your overall understanding, but you don't become a better Cirrus pilot from it, right? So one of the reasons that we did it is like every single module is now all Cirrus content. Right, so so when we talk about approach speeds or you know um, takeoff, you know weight or whatever the case may be, or the avionics, it is the actual plane that you will be owning and flying afterwards, right? So, um, the the content is is very relevant for a serious owner in that sense. So that's you know that's uh, one of the primary reasons, and the second one is we we we've always sort of had like an internal joke that taking your PPL is sort of like a divorce. Right? You never know when you're done and you keep throwing money at it, right? So, so how, do you, how do you make it more predictable? Like meaning when you sign up like, and you say, okay, I can commit, let's say, three to four hours a week to training, like when am I done? Like, so a very predictable sort of roadmap. And then with access to uh, instructors. So when you sign up, you can also choose from a long list of instructors in, the, in our network. So you don't have to sort of piece it all together. You know, you, know, you download your program, and then you go find a flight training school and then an instructor. And hopefully that instructor will, will be the same instructor throughout your whole you know, training uh, uh, period. That's not the case for us. Like you, you, it's a one-stop shop in that sense. So, so that should be, make it better, more predictable, and a much more enjoyable experience. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so I got here early, and they brought me over to the little training corner that you have. Sure. And they gave me a, a taste for the curriculum. Yeah. And 
as someone, as a, I teach graduate school as well, and I, as a pilot myself, and uh, having learned the old school way, uh, and in full disclosure, I have never flown even a simulator with a G1000. So yep. I'm a steam gauge person yep. through and through, although I do have some more sophisticated avionics in there. Uh, now, that's not how I learn. Yeah. But they gave me the sample of how they you progress from like iPad learning and videos to simulators yeah. to you know and I was almost competent <laughs> even after just going through the exercises on the iPad yeah. and then going into the uh, cockpit simulator for the G one thousands. You 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 hired an education pedagogy expert yeah. someone who understands how to adult train learning. adult yeah. learning yeah. and so you brought that person together with your instructor to get instructors together and said, how do we immerse students to accelerate the learning, but make it really stick and yeah. not just for the test, you know? So, yeah. so I can firsthand uh, testify, if you will, that uh, testimonial, that it's a really interesting program. Thank it's, you. it's really, yeah, I mean, it, for, for us, it's not just about passing the, the test, right? It's right. becoming a competent pilot and a confident pilot because the more you fly, the more, you know, seriousness you will consume yeah, and, and parts you will use over the over the years, but 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 it's really, it's for us it's about creating a, an enjoyment of, of learning. Right? It's not just for us learning is not an event. It's mm -hmm. a lifestyle. Like mm -hmm. you continue, you know, throughout your your flying career to add on, you know, your commercial ratings, your IFR ratings, or whatever it is you you add on, and it should be fun, right? And it should be tailored to the audience, like. So when you go to school, when you're, you know, 15 or 25, you're you're on the bench for eight hours a day. Like you're that you can consume content like that. When you're 45 or 55, you consume content differently. In bite sizes, you like to, you know, go out and try it physically, and then, you know, so it's just a different sort of learning behavior. And we thought that was really important that we that we marry these concepts together. So it's it's fun, engaging, bite size and very relevant for the airplane that you eventually will be flying, you know, Cirrus. So, so um, yeah, it, it, we, we have high expectations. I mean, and part of it is, you know, it's sort of well understood that 80% that, that of people that start their PPL course never finish it for an array of different reasons. So how can we flip that on its head so 80% actually comes through the funnel, right? And, and one of the things that, that I noticed was, like, for somebody to have their own schedule, line up with an instructor with an available air, aircraft and good weather is, is it's a huge challenge, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of people sort of get fatigued in that process. So if you can remove a lot of those obstacles by, by having access to multiple instructors, you know, within the network uh, or that particular school you sign up with, you know, a syllabus that you can do at any time, you know, on, on an iPad or iPhone, um, available simulators if the if the weather is bad, you know, in the network, and it's all sort of you know connected. So if you're flying with another instructor tomorrow because Peter is not available today and Paul is, well, he can quickly look at your training status, like what you covered last time on the online portal. So it's just a it's more modern way of learning, I think. Uh, so we're excited what, uh, what yeah it will come. Last this time last year when we sat down, you were you weren't going to talk about this PPP program, yeah. but you knew it was already in the works. Yes. yes. So, and you've been, we've been at it for, I think three, three years now and spent, I think it was $4 million. Yeah, yeah. Exactly where I wanted to go with the conversation, because one of the hats I wear is to help early stage companies. And one of the areas I see these companies struggle with is being able to see the entire canvas of their business. Yeah. And it was clear to me that Cirrus sees the entire 
canvas. Yeah. I'm assuming that that metaphor is familiar to sure. you. So, yeah. um, would you mind sharing your view of that canvas as it related to creating value and investing in some of those corners of the non-obvious boxes of that sure. canvas? Sure. So, if I can use the word ecosystem, sure. um, uh, so that's how I think about it. So, if if you have a um, sort of if you look at all the obstacles that somebody wanting to you know learn how to fly and own an aircraft have to jump over yeah first of all you got to figure out like what what syllabus do you want to you know uh, use or you know as sporties king serious whatever then you got to find a flight school then you got to find an instructor you got to find the airplane that you want to fly in afterwards you got to buy an airplane you got to finance it you got to insure it you got to figure out how to hang and store it and maintain it and all stuff there's all these things that you got to piece together as a complete novice in the industry, right? That is hard. You have to be so enthusiastic and like you know determined to you know to get to uh, to succeed in this journey. What we're trying to do is just make it easy. It should be owning an airplane should be no more complex than owning a car. Learning how to fly should be no more complex than learning how to drive. So if we can make it that simple, like a one-stop shop, and take the you know the the mystique out of it, thousands of people are going to get into aviation. So that's really what we're building out. This ecosystem, the uh, the private pilot program, is really just one piece in that equation. We've also introduced you know serious financing, serious insurance, you know through broker services, but it's all on the on the website. So where where that lead is funneled afterward, or that transaction is funneled afterward, is not really that important to the customer as long as they, it's all pieced together. So um, so that's you know uh, sort of how we think about that canvas, <clears throat> and what customers have become used to with Apple and, and other like Tesla and others is that there's an app that you sort of just dial into and it's all there, right? For us, that's Cirrus IQ. So that's sort of the, the canvas that holds it all together, like that, it, that all these, you know, masterpieces are painted onto, if you will. So Cirrus IQ uh, that we just launched for the jet now, and uh, we launched it for the SR uh, series a couple of years ago, is that um, anchor. So through that, we can you know, essentially remotely communicate to the aircraft and the, and the uh, you know, pilot and passengers on board. We can offer up services. Uh, we can tie together everything from training to service, you know, uh, scheduling and all those sorts of things. So it makes it easy, right? And that's really what we're trying to do. So there's technological advances that we make on the product portfolio, but at the same time, we want to build out that ecosystem that receives all these airplanes that are coming out. Um, so last year, I think we produced... If memory serves me right, like 920 airplanes, oh, sorry, 620 airplanes or so, and they they go out into the world. And if we don't build up the ecosystem, they will become orphans, right? So we have to re- create a, a, an ecosystem that receives all these airplanes, a brick and mortar, you know, service and and partners and so forth, but also these services that just make it really easy. Yeah, I think you're. Uh Speaking around what ultimately boils down to in the business, uh, two things. One, uh, lowering the barrier to entry yep. and lowering the effort to retain, yep. And um, which any business doesn't do well, they're not going to succeed. But you're really leaning into that really strong. Yep. And it's really just nice to see how you're taking a much more modern approach to the whole aviation, general aviation field. Mm-hmm. And looking at how many of the other manufacturers are still practicing things that were, you know, are at this point, 70 years old and the way they behave. And, you know, you, you've recognized that customer intimacy 
is worth investing in. Yeah. And it was pretty obvious from the press um, press briefings that were earlier in the yeah. week to everything else that you see here. Yeah. And I, that, I'm imagining that uh, that's very more or less unique in the general aviation field. It's got that kind of yeah. I mean, so. Um, Thank you, by the way. Um, yeah. So it sounds like it's working. What we're what we're trying to do, uh, but but and I'm not even a customer, yeah. so I'm like but I it, can see it. it. It's I, it's hard, and it's not to knock on any of the other OEMs because they're all wonderful companies and and, and, and great products. Um, but we've just made it a priority to sort of anchor around a handful of things like safety, obviously being our corner uh, cornerstone, and then this idea of convenience, right, um, and accessibility, and like this customer intimacy. Um, because we, we want to have that customer for life, not just one transaction. And I think that could be one of the main differences between us and, and the rest of the industry. We don't just make an airplane and send it out and somebody else takes care of everything else. Like we, we want to be part of that journey to make sure that it's a wonderful service experience and training experience and trade-in experience You know when you want to upgrade to the next you know uh, trim level and so forth. So we, we just want to be along for the ride we, uh, and, and help manage that experience we don't have a desire to own it all. Like we don't have to be, you know, direct in everything. Obviously, we have 800 service partners around the world, and 200. Oh, sorry, 800 training partners around the world, and I think 240 service partners, and they're awesome. That is what makes the Cirrus family. But, but for instance, the PPL program is an example where we create some really good content that we then share with that network. Right, and train them in how to execute it and vice versa. We learn from them what we need to refine. So it's this great you know, partnership of constantly you know, evolving so, so that it doesn't become stale. So it's just, um, so when we think about customer intimacy, it's not just with the end customer, but it's also with the network that is part of our family, right? Like our first customer, you know, essentially is the service centers and, and, and training centers, right? Who then deal with the end customer. So one of the things that we are working super hard um, to do is, is to create uh, a CRM system, essentially, that sort of sits in our ecosystem so that we at all times know who's flying what aircraft, what service center is servicing them, um, you know, what training partner, you know, what's the, what's the trainer uh, for, for that individual, instructor for that individual, so that we can constantly add additional services, like in the app, right? So. For instance, we, if we have a lot of customers that are BFR only, um, maybe we can help them become IFR, you know, uh, uh, rated, if we just know who they are. Right? We don't necessarily know that today. And again, the more confident the pilot, uh, the more safe they will be, the more they use their aircraft and so forth, and the better it is for the whole community. Right? So we're trying to build this ecosystem of services, but primarily for safety, and then customer benefit. And if we can get something out of it afterwards, then great. Right? But that's always our, our focus. Safety first, customer value second. And then we'll figure out how we can get value from it as a company. But, so it's a very customer-centric approach. Um, yeah, and that, that's actually very important for people who aren't used to that kind of experience in a lot of things that they buy mm-hmm. to realize that being... They want whether we admit it or not. We want to be taken care of. Yeah, and so sure, and yeah. and, and and that always pays off. You know, and and it's really difficult for some very traditional companies to, to yeah. understand how that yeah. works. So this might be a curveball, but when you think of like the role model for not everybody who listens to our podcast are pilots or airplane owners or 
um, you know, can really relate to why the things that you're saying are important mm -hmm. in a customer or owner or pilot experience. Yeah. But they might be more familiar with another brand of another product in a completely different industry. Sure. Is there a company out there that you are saying, we want to be the this of general aviation? Like, like mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of... Well, so, so I think there's bits and pieces of like fantastic companies, right, that are not afraid of disrupting themselves, right, in the pursuit of always creating value for the customer, right? Um, I, I think there's some really good examples from Apple and Tesla. Now, th those are sort of boring examples because everybody knows them, and, but it, they're easy to, to sort of relate to, right? Apple has done a fantastic job at creating like an ecosystem with Apple iTunes, with you know, uh, Apple Pay and all these other things. It's now really difficult, you know, if you're an Apple customer to switch over to Android or some other you know, products because you will, you're going to abandon all that ecosystem. And when you, from time to time, and I believe Apple had, had some issues with batteries on one of their product launches you know, many generations ago, there's, there's uh, forgiveness in the customer base, right? Because there's so much other good. And then, of course, they do the right thing. They go back and fix it and so forth. But when you have that customer intimacy and some some credits in the cookie jar with customers in that sense, there's forgiveness, right? That that. Uh, but it's a two-way street. you got to do right by the customer, right? Even though it's not the most profitable thing, you got to do right by the customer. And I think, uh, to give the other example, Tesla has a similar philosophy. It's not enough that the customer likes us, right? They must love us. So that's how we that's how we start, um, and and how we think about it, right? That it has to it has to be great, right? I, I internally always say if if we can't be number one or number two in whatever we're trying to do, we shouldn't play. I was joking when I came in uh, to for, to set up for the interview that they had a tray of gluten free breakfast sandwiches, <laughs> and I'm like, I think I might have to buy a Cirrus now, because <laughs> for that for no other reason than there's gluten free breakfast sandwiches. <laughs> I didn't even know that, but that's a good example. Obviously, we've taken up a bunch of your time. Is there any other innovative kind of things that are going to be new that we can anticipate from the company in the next couple of years? Anything you can uh, even hint at? Yeah. So, so we've, we've made it a good habit of not you know, uh, talking about new product uh, benefits or, or, or uh, features in advance. Because, again, the industry you know, has so many examples of, of uh, somebody saying, hey, this is going to be out next year, and then it never comes, right? So, so we focus on constantly evolving all the platforms. So, for instance, we just launched a, uh, an upgraded um, radar for the, um, for the Vision Jet with Garmin, um, which is, you know, a, a fantastic radar uh, that is now available on all, you know, new Vision Jets. We just added Cirrus IQ to the Vision Jet. So last year uh, we added Wi-Fi and what's called hot and high. So a little extra thrust when you are in hot and high conditions. So we constantly just refine the product and, and add value, you know, to it. Uh, and so those are two introductions that we literally just did this week. Um, so there's going to be more in that in that general direction of how do we how do we make it safer and more convenient and more connected uh, to fly, both connected. You, you to the airplane, but also you to the network of, of partners that we have, of service centers and training centers and partners. So last year, this time, the whole industry was like choking on supply chain issues. Yeah. Has that improved from your perspective much? Uh, it has, um, but there's always some, you know, firestorm somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it is, it was, the last two years was really bad, right? And, and um, what we were able to do was 
uh, essentially uh, because the backlog of, of reservations and orders um, is a couple of years deep now, we can give really detailed forecasts to our supply chain network so that they know to ramp, right? So they're not just, uh, you know, reacting to demand and, and uh, ebbs and flows in the, in the current market, but we give, you know, in many cases, 12 to 15 months forecasts. Yeah. So for that reason, we, we were not as impacted as everybody else, but it is really uh, a challenge. Uh, and you can imagine at any given time, um, you know, we produce somewhere between 10 to 11 airplanes, 12 airplanes per week across the, the, the platforms that we have. So if the line all of a sudden stops, it's millions of dollars a, a, a day in cash consumption, right? Uh, so you really got to be on top of your supply chain and your manufacturing setup. Um, um, so I think we've navigated it uh, better than most, but there's always, you know, new things that pop up. But, but by and large, we're in good shape. Supply chains notwithstanding, what, right now, what's the lead time on someone who buys a plane here today and when can they expect it? So on the SR range, um, it's about two years wait. So essentially, uh, it, it depends a little bit on trim level and where you are in the world and so forth, but roughly two years wait on the, on the uh, um, SR. And we have uh, about 350 reservations and orders for the jet. And last year we made, uh, I think it was 90 jets so, so uh, you know, uh, a little bit extra uh, yeah. backlog on that. But again, it, it, it varies on what trim level uh, that sure. you choose. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners that we haven't already covered? Oh, my goodness. There's <laughs> so much going on in the company. Uh, uh, in a couple of weeks, we will open our new innovation center in Duluth. Mm-hmm. So last year, we, we acquired a building, 200,000 square foot or so, right across the runway. And we, we will be lifting and shifting about 300 engineers from the production building where they sit today over into this new facility, which will be our new global uh, innovation center. Um, and it'll just be engineers and those related functions um, and a huge you know, hangar for essentially sort of Santa's playground of, of uh, where we can innovate and all, the, all those tools are and so forth. Sounds like a place I have to visit. Oh, it's, it, it'll, be, it'll will, be fun. You, will, so, will you be so, doing tours? Uh, we, we might. You know, <laughs> a couple of things might be covered, but, but yeah. Um, and then that frees up about 75,000 square foot of production space so we can expand uh, production uh, capabilities. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so, okay. so lots, of, lots of stuff going on. As long as it's not the winter time, I might. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Next, well, you can ski. You, okay. know, you can do a couple of things up there. Well, once again, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me for the Airplane Geeks. My pleasure. Again, this is Hillel Glazer, Innovation and Entrepreneurship Correspondent for another installment of Beyond the Press Release from AirVenture 2023. Thank you. Now an interview with two young pilots who flew around the world solo, completely solo. They each did it independently of the other and in the opposite directions. Zara Rutherford was the youngest female ever to do it. She started at age 18 and was 19 at the completion of the trip. A year later, her brother Mac did it starting at age 16 and finished at 17 to become the youngest person ever to fly solo around the world. They were not just at the controls. They were the only ones in the plane, uh, truly solo. And they did not have an advanced team meeting them at each destination. They did each leg relying entirely on their own planning. It was truly solo. Okay, here's the interview. This is Hillel Glazer for the Airplane Geeks podcast, recording from AirVenture 2023 in Oshkosh. I'm in the area of AirVenture called Home Built with Zara and Mac Rutherford. 
two very accomplished pilots who've both done something pretty remarkable. And we're here to talk with them about what it is that they did. Zara Mack, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have either of you been to AirVenture before? Uh, it's my first time. I've been here once before, but it's definitely better the second time around. Oh yeah? What made it better? I think the first time I was in a rush. I only had a day and now I've been here for three days. I got to see the night show. It was just, it's been really cool. Yeah, it is quite an experience. Do you think you'll come back? Yeah, definitely. At least for me, I really enjoy it. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, all right. So to get this out of the way, what did you guys do <laughs> that brought you here? So in 2021, I became the youngest woman to fly solo around the world. Um, and in 2022, I became the youngest person to fly solo around the world. Well, okay. So young, you, 2022, sorry, 2022 and 2021. That's right. So you, you did a, a similar flight one year after the other. At what ages at the time? So I, I kind of thought of, like, I, I realized I was going to do it, or like I was set on it when I was 18. Like, I was like, okay, I'm doing this. And I actually left and landed when I was 19. So I was 19 years old, and uh, my brother was... Uh... Uh, I set off when I was 16, but, and I was hoping to finish it while I was still 16, but unfortunately, due to delays, I, I finished when I was 17. Okay, so it's still not like it was a decades-long process for either of you. Why did you come to Oshkosh or AirVenture this year? What is your What are you hoping to do here at Oshkosh or AirVenture? Um, well, I was just hoping to show that young people can make a difference, that you don't have to be 18 to do something special. <laughs> just, yeah, follow your dreams. You don't have to be 18 to do something special? Is that what you say? Yeah. Oh, so a little bit of competition there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the idea is that... Um, you, Usually these, these crazy tasks and, uh, and goals are kind of reserved for adults. Yeah. So I think that's what yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's not <laughs> a jam it's in not, my yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wow, okay. okay, see how it is. Oh, oh yeah, time, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Um, I'm here, yeah, I'm here for, uh, mostly for women in aviation. Uh, growing up, I was kind of lacking a lot of the female role models that I could have used as a girl. And so I've been talking with girl venture, women venture, and it's been a lot of fun. That's pretty great. Now, I, I know you sort of touched on it already, but why did either of you want to do a round-the-world flight? So for me, when I, I grew up, and we're, my brother and I are very lucky to have grown up in a family of pilots in aviation. You know, we, we love planes, and it was, from the beginning, I knew that I was going to be a pilot. Like, I was really set on it. And... I'd always, you know, you hear about these crazy stories of these pilots or these people doing the craziest things. And I thought, you know, I'd love to go on one of those adventures and flying around the world is one of the greatest adventures that you could do. But growing up, I just kind of always thought, you know, this is something like other people do. Like this is something you read about in books, this is something that you see in movies. This isn't something that people like us, you know, that we, I grew up in suburbs, you know, I go flying sometimes on the weekends. Like this isn't something that I... Dude, like this is something that I, that's for a person like me. And then um, I actually realized that, that that mindset is the thing that was stopping me. And so then I just decided, you know what, let me just try it out, see what happens. And it worked out. We got, you know, sponsorship, got a plane sponsor, Shark. We can get into that later. And uh, and suddenly it became, it became real. Mac, did you have a different, uh, another way to answer it for yourself? Um, well, so for me, yeah, I've, I've always loved flying. Um, and it was once my sister flew around the world, I thought that's an incredible way to fly. Because in the end, what I wanted to do is I had my license 
and I wanted to fly, but I wasn't sure how to really be able to do something cool with my flying. I could do something, to do, to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and flying around the world gave me a way to well do something with with my aviation career and just just fly. Really. Did you did you have to like put school on hold to do this, or did you do it after high school? Or like I guess in the U.S., someone at sixteen and seventeen would still be in high school and secondary school. So what happened? Yeah, no, so I missed about five months of school, so I had to do a, whole, a lot of catching up when I got back. Um, but I think I, I was most successful at that, um, and I've just finished school now. Oh, congratulations. So uh, just so our, our listeners are aware, where, where were you living, or where did you grow up? And, and where did, you know, was aviation a big part of where you grew up, or, or was it actually also on top of everything else? Aviation wasn't such a big deal, or where was that? How did that fall out? We grew up in Brussels in Belgium. Uh, we've kind of always lived there. Uh, I think we, the way the family got introduced to aviation is my our dad was a helicopter pilot in the British Army, and so he, from a young age, started flying, and then went into aircraft, and specifically now he's been ferry flying. Uh, shortly after. You know, my, my dad and my mum got married. My my mum got into recreational flying as well. And then like that, with my dad's job, we'd go flying if I If I heard you correctly, you distinguished helicopters from actual aircraft, and I think I can support okay, that. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I should have put airplanes. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, we always joke about, obviously, you know, the differences. So just like... You, Zara, you mentioned that the idea came to you when you were about sixteen or seventeen. I think it's one of it, it's something that I thought about for a long time. You know how, like now, I you know I tell myself, "Well, oh, it'd be really cool if one day I climbed Mount Everest, mm-hmm. right?" It's like it's it's not going to happen. But you know, you think about those things and you dream about them, and and they're cool. And it was kind of one of those things. And then I started really thinking about it when I was eighteen, like really, like realistically. Okay, what do I need to do here to actually fly around the world? What is it that I need? And then. And then it became, yeah. So, I mean, to start the thinking process seriously at 18, to actually begin working on it and accomplishing it by 19, let's just talk about the planning process itself, not the actual necessarily uh, the kind of flight planning, planning, but I mean like the planning of the entire adventure, like all of it. How long did you think it would take to plan and how long did it actually take to plan? Um, well, so uh, planning-wise, they were, they were, it took a bit of time. Um, obviously, finding a route, sponsor, a plane. Um, but for me, my the biggest difficulty was actually on the route because I wrote all the planning, like permits and things like that. You have to do while you're actually on your way there. So I had problems with things like permits going to Algeria or permits going to Egypt, uh, visas for places like Iran. And so what ended up happening was... I had huge delays when I was actually on the supposed to be on the go, um, and those were very frustrating because it meant I was supposed to only take between one month and a half to two months, and I'm taking five months to fly. Oh boy! Yeah, I think say a lot of the planning you end up doing, like the planning in terms of paperwork and logistics, ends up happening on the trip. But I would say the, the from the moment of deciding I was going to do this to leaving, it was about three months. So it was a pretty short time span. It is pretty short. I mean, I've not done a ton of research to be honest with you, but I've heard where people just doing ferry flights take you know weeks or months to plan and you went all the way around the world the world's largest ferry flight so to speak in a small plane 
by yourself. Mac, how much of Zara's experience informed your planning and experience of it? Like, what did you take away from what she did and said, okay, now I know I need to do this or not do this or something like that? Um, well, so um, the biggest piece of advice she gave me was don't get yourself into a situation you can't get yourself out of. So, for example, if you were flying down a valley and it looks like it's getting cloudy overhead, um, always get yourself in a situation where if it gets too bad, you can get yourself out of it and land somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And you don't get yourself in a position where you're down the valley and your only option is to keep going forward um, because that can become really, really difficult. Yeah, that definitely can get scary yeah. very fast, can't it? Were there any noticeable differences in your routes or in any other aspect with your trip than with her trip, or did you just try to copy her trip exactly? No, um, it, uh, my trip was almost completely different. So um, I really wanted to visit a lot of Africa during my trip. So I went down, um, I started in Bulgaria, Sofia, um, went down south all the way to Madagascar, hmm. um, and then flew down south of Asia and like that. And I think my sister did more of South America um, and a little bit more of Southeast Asia than I did. Got it. What were some of the most surprising challenges either of you had during the adventure? Um, I don't know about su- surprising because because I knew it was kind of going to be a problem from the start. But my biggest challenge was the crossing of the Pacific mm-hmm. because um, when I set off, the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war started, and so my friend Trevor's aircraft was no longer allowed inside of Russia. Mm. So. Um, I suddenly had no way of crossing the Pacific because I couldn't fly through Russia, but I also couldn't fly through Japan because my type of aircraft uh, was banned in Japan. So um, we had, me and my team had to find a solution that we could get a special exemption that they'd never given before to allow me to fly into Japan. And then I had to do a really long 10-hour flight from Japan directly to, the, to an uninhabited island in the Aleutian Islands. So that was definitely my... Wow. So was there an airstrip there? So 15 years ago, there was a Coast Guard station so there's there is a runway, but it's it's not in, it's not in great shape. But if for an emergency landings, it, it works well. <laughs> wow! But and who met you there with fuel? No one. So um, I just had the next day. Oh, I, so I went. Basically, I had to go there because um, it was starting to become dark and nighttime, and it's incredibly important with microlights that you land before it's nighttime. Um, so I had to go, get there, and then the next day I carried on um, and got some fuel at my next stop. Oh, I see. So you just put down and where did you sleep in a tent or in the plane or something there was a shed on the side of the runway so it had a really broken down sofa um and it was in really bad shape didn't even have a door but it was definitely the best out there because it was pouring down with the rain when i got arrived oh my goodness were you alone uh, yes all alone it was midnight so it, it was it was not a great time to arrive um but the next day i was able to look around a little bit and it was a really nice island what time of year was it um it was 31st of july but since it was so far north it was like freezing yeah so, sure yeah. of course and the Aleutian Islands it's, yeah. it's quite cold and unforgiving right yeah. you, can, you can imagine for Mac like the situation you find yourself in when the best diversion option is an uninhabited island right in the North Pacific <laughs> so did you have ferry uh, ferry tanks did you fly with ferry tanks yes so I had uh, what's called a title pack which is uh, which gave me 95 liters something around there um, but that wasn't enough to get me from Japan to the, to the US so I in South Korea, I had to add two extra fuel tanks just for that one flight. Oh, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> and and did, you, did you unload them somewhere, just like leave them behind or give them? Uh, 
No, because the, it, we'd completely connected within the system. Oh. But once uh, once I was going, I just emptied it, and I, did, I just didn't refuel the extra fuel tank. So I, I still needed my turtle pack for other big fights like the Atlantic. And okay, like understood. Sorry, did you have anything even remotely close to that? Uh, no, no long water flights in the Pacific. I had my longest flight was uh, Mumbai to Dubai. That was eight hours of water. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, unfortunately for me, I did not get to experience the uninhabited islands. <laughs> Maybe but, one day. <laughs> but I think my, my sister got a lot more um, bad weather flying. She. I had I had very very cold temperatures. Uh, for timings, I got delayed a lot along the west coast of the United States. So when I finally got to Alaska to cross into Russia at the time. Um, like before the the war, um, I kind of found myself in uh, in temperatures that were around minus thirty degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, and I was on the ground, so I wasn't sure how the shark, like the engine, because it was a Rotax nine one two, so I wasn't sure how the engine would cope with that. So what I did was I, I in Alaska I asked the mechanic to block the air intakes of the aircraft at the front. But it was a lot warmer in Alaska than it was in Russia. So when I departed Alaska, it was about two and a half hours over water. And when you're that far north and, it's that, and the land is that cold, the ocean is actually quite a bit warmer than the land. So I wouldn't know whether those air intake like, blocks were working or not until I finally got to Russia two and a half hours later. Anyway, two and a half hours go by. It was, yeah, I know about 600 feet for a part of it. But uh, yeah, it, it was cold. Like I was, I was just in the green, so I was happy. And then I land. And the next day, was probably my most challenging flight, which was uh, six and a half hours over like Siberian wilderness, and that was like wilderness. Like you'd be flying, like you're so far north, there's no trees, right? There's no, um, no roads, no cities, no towns, no houses. There is nothing, and so that was a strange experience to go from point A to point B that wasn't over water, and where there was still no alternates. Like it was either, you know, the departure or destination. Wow! Thanks for reminding me. You went west and you went east yeah so that's uh definitely different routes altogether obviously you know, that's just beginning right there when you were planning this you said you ended up taking a lot longer so seasons were different than what you expected and and just about everything might have been different than what you expected so was that nerve-wracking was that in any way like okay this is nothing like what i expected and now i gotta still do this yeah no well so well so for me um the main difficulties with that was to do with actually extreme hot because I left during the spring and that was going to be perfect. So I would fly the, through Africa while it was still not too hot and then I'd get to the north and it would be really warm because it was it would be middle of the summer. Um, but then I got stuck in Crete for a month and a half due to paperwork. So In Crete? Yes, like, in Crete. It, you're still in Europe? Yes, I'm still in Europe <laughs> and I get stuck a month and a half of paperwork, which is really annoying. Um, but what that meant was once I was flying in Egypt and Sudan. It was incredibly hot. Um, when I was landing in Sudan, Meroe, my first stop, it was 45 degrees Celsius to 50 degrees Celsius, which I think is like yeah, 120 Fahrenheit yeah, or something. Yeah, easily. Yeah. Which is, uh, yeah, so that was that was definitely like my hot weather, weather problem. Um, but no, I, I didn't have any real... There were I had monsoons in India, but like most of the time I was... I think I was comparative to my sister weather-wise... I was pretty lucky. Um, Did either of you have a chase plane or somebody following you around or doing anything with, you know, with more fuel and more people and more resources? No. no. Like, it's not, it's a solo flight around the world. Yeah, it is. If you've got a support crew, like, following you, then it doesn't, it takes away from, 
the, the point was that this is like our thing. We're like we did have help to doing paperwork with the team doing paperwork and planning. So like we definitely got some you know, help from that that point. But when it came to the actual flying and making decisions, looking at the weather, things like that, that was yeah, that was down to us. Right. So I'm pretty sure that several of the other uh, firsts, if you will, uh, accomplished the first sort of in name because they were the only ones at the controls, right? And they were the only ones perhaps even in the plane, but very often there's there's somebody else doing something with like coming along with them, following or getting there ahead of time and preparing. But you guys completely did it by yourselves. Yeah, no, that was very important for us. Yeah. I think, yeah, if we did it on our own. But even if we, yeah, even having a chase team, if anything, I think it gives you a full yeah. sense of security. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much safer or more helpful it would have been if you had a chase yeah. team, but yeah, for us, it was it was just us. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I think if I'd had to go find a dilapidated couch in a dilapidated shed on an abandoned island, that would have been I would have been like, you know, come get me home. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Come get me. So that's yeah. What did what did you? Did, did what you want to accomplish or your objectives or your rationale or any of that change as while either while you were going through it or as a result of going through it? Like I started thinking I wanted to do it for these reasons, but then as you're working your way through it, you, I'm assuming you learned a lot more about a lot of other things that were never part of your plan, but no less valuable. Is that something you experienced? Well, so for, for me, it was, I wanted to fly, I loved flying, and to be honest, that stayed from start to finish. Like, even when I arrived after five months in Sofia, I was still loving flying. If I saw something cool on the ground, I would happily go and fly low to, to, to check it out. Um, but what I did notice was a big difference was how I handled stress. So um, I remember at the start, the, the even the most minor difficulty, and I, I would sometimes be really stressful and like wondering how am I going to solve this and things like that and then once I get to things like the Pacific where I'm in where things can go badly really quickly I'm able to think things much more logically um, and I was able to handle much more difficult situations much more calmly than I did at the start cool anything occur to you I think my the the my motivations yeah remains throughout it's really that that kind of helped me push through I'd say that um, similar to my to my brother, like you go through stressful situations at the beginning, and that helps you then develop that skill set later on when you need it. Like oh, the weather, like for example, the weather's really bad, and then mentally you can also tell yourself, well, you know, I've gone through some bad situations, like this is fine, like I can do this, um, and it, it helps cope with the stress. You started out wanting to do this for yourself as an accomplishment and as a goal for yourself. You also wanted to show that others to others that they don't have to be an adult to accomplish amazing things. Are you able to take your experience and spread the word? Do you feel that that's working? Like that objective is actually happening, that people are responding to you. Do you have a, like, I don't know, from not the word, not the best word to use, but a fan club of people saying, I want to do this or I'm inspired or something. Um, so every since I have had people but um, come up to me and say, say well, your story is inspiring and things like this. But um, I think uh, going out over to places, so um, meeting other young people. So for example, when I was in um, Kenya, I met the Young Aviators Club of Africa um, and meeting these sorts of clubs and things like that. Although I may not be 
they may not feel just from my flight alone that they're suddenly going to do something. I'm hoping that I can add sort of to their life and maybe make them see that they can do something similar. Um, it's really hard to tell though which um, children you've inspired or not because for, it might take five years before they've, they decide to take, take that first step towards making their dream come true. Um, I just hope I have been able to inspire at least one person so for either of you what are your plans for the future do you want to have a career in aviation or education or what is there any is your, does you see do you see a future that's in any way connected to what you accomplished um so for me i'm definitely going to have a some sort of um job in aviation i believe um, i'm definitely going to stay i don't know which area of aviation i want to go into um that's that's for later but for now it's for go to university um and then keep flying yeah, same. I've started. Uh, I've started ferry flying, which is fun. So transporting. I think uh, like a year ago now, we did uh, Johannesburg to Sydney, Australia, in a series for oh, a client. So that was a really cool experience. Um, and then now I've just done my first year studying electrical engineering at university. Oh, where, which university? Uh, Stanford in California. Oh, very good for you. Yeah. Is there anything you'd want to tell our listeners about your experience, or anything we didn't cover that you think is relevant to our conversation that you'd like to share? I would like to, if I, it's kind of a shameless uh, promo, but I would like to really thank our sponsors. Uh, without, it, it was really imperative for both my brother and I that we were able to self-fund this because it's very easy to say go for your dreams when you know you've got your, when you just you can just pay whatever you want. Um, so so that was really important, and that's ICD Soft, which is a software company, but also of course Shark, our plane, and then we're here actually today with Dynon, uh, Dynon Avionics. So so yeah. Yeah, no, so a huge thank you to our sponsors, of course, which, without which we simply couldn't have done it. So you mentioned you self-funded. So you had sponsorship, but you, you got it yourselves. You then had to come up with everything else to do it yourselves. That's hence the solo Well, So, so, so the all the finances were covered by sponsorships, but then, of course. Right. Yeah. And then we had oh, our parents, of course, supported us. And um, like my mom helped with social media and press, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so that was great. And my dad helped with like paperwork, like trying to figure out like okay how, like to give you an idea of the stuff my my dad and we had another amazing woman in the UK helping to give you an idea of the stuff we were asking them. Max's biggest request, you know, was hi, I'm trying to fly to Japan, but my aircraft is illegal there. And then my request was hi, I'm trying to fly through North Korea. So that's the kind of stuff that they were trying to. <laughs> to figure out on the fly, so yeah. to speak. No pun intended. <laughs> so that's great. Well, I really appreciate you two taking the time to speak with us. It's I, There's so much more in so many other directions we could have gone, but then you don't have all day. So it was really great. Thank you both, uh, Zara and Mac. Congratulations on your accomplishments. And uh, we hope to catch up with you at the next Air Venture. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is Hello Blazer for the Airplane Geeks podcast from AirVenture 2023 in none other than Oshkosh with Zara and Mac Rutherford, who both, within about a year or so of each other, went around the world in a shark airplane. Read up about them. Where can they find more about you? Uh, Instagrams are Mac Solo. That's M-A-C-K-S-O-L-O. And you can find me on FlyZolo. So fly and then Z-O-L-O. Got it. Good to know. We'll look, we'll look for you there. Sounds good. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much. You. Up next, our main man, Micah, brings us some interviews from the Spurwink Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In. That was held July 23, 2023. 
First, you'll hear from 56-year-old Sean Cowan, who recently decided he wanted to learn to fly. Then Micah has a conversation with John Tate. He's a retired air traffic controller, and he worked in both GA and commercial operations, and so he has some interesting perspectives. And finally, Micah talks with Seth Whedon, a recent high school graduate who earned his PPL and now has an aviation job with Northeast Air. That's a large FBO at WPM. Now, you've heard Max Flight and I rave about the Spurwing Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In for years now. You probably know it's sponsored by EAA Chapter 141, and it's always held on the Sunday following July 4th with a rain date for the following weekend. But what if, like this year, it rains for weeks before the 4th of July and the weekend after? Rather than canceling it altogether, it was postponed for one more week. The crowd was a bit smaller. The only advertising was by word of mouth and a Facebook page. And after all, this was a Sunday before Air Venture in Oshkosh. But there was still a nice turnout, and the pancakes were wonderful as always. I got there very early as usual. It's advertised from 8 to 11 in the morning, but I was there at 7 to visit with some chapter members before it got too busy. There were already a few planes on the field, and the griddle was just being fired up. It was a fun pre-show as usual, and it was a great day. Some of my non-airplane geek friends who attended last year and said they would be back next time actually did return. Sean Moody, former Maine gubernatorial candidate, came by again in his progressive aerodyne Sea Ray. Friend of the show and helicopter pilot Ernie Eaton flew in, piloting his lovely red Robinson R-44. He even offered to take two of my non-geek friends who had never been in a helicopter before on a flight around the pattern. Unfortunately, being a bit intimidated by the idea and, in fact, having some fear of flying, they turned him down. I must say I was disappointed. I really wanted them to experience the unique thrill of a helicopter. But the day was a great success, and I got to eat some great blueberry pancakes with real Maine blueberries and real Maine maple syrup. I got to see some great airplanes, connect with old friends, and meet some new ones. I thought you might like to meet a few of them, too. So we're talking to Sean Cowan, who's a student pilot. Now, not just a kid student pilot. He's a grown man, but just decided he wanted to learn how to fly. So, Sean, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thanks, Micah. Sean, tell us a little bit about yourself. What have you been doing? You're, you're, you're an older guy. I'm not going to guess your age, but, you know, you're, you're grown up, a real grown up. What made you decide you wanted to fly? I'm 56 years old. Uh, It's not as though there has been a lifelong desire to do this, and I finally got around to it. It was more um, experiential. I I bought a place in central Maine three years ago, and one of my neighbors, Jim Crane, has been an active uh, uh, aviation enthusiast for more than four decades. And so when he offered to take me up for a ride and see Maine from a different vantage point, namely the sky versus driving through, the experience of both taking off, seeing my neighbors uh, and neighborhood in a different perspective, and frankly, just the, the degree of flexibility and freedom, I think, that it, it's, it looks to offer pilots, I became interested in finding out what was involved with becoming a pilot. Now, let me ask you, because becoming a pilot is not something that's easy to do. It takes a lot of time. What do you do in the rest of the world that allows you to take the time to do this? Well, uh, uh, to compli- complicate matters further, I don't even live in Maine full-time. My residence is in Southport, Connecticut, 
and I spend as much time as I can up in Maine, and I fly out of Pittsfield Airport. Um, I own a few small businesses down in Connecticut that I'm fortunate enough to be able to control from my smartphone, so I do have flexibility with my schedule, and um, you're right, it, it is a, it's a larger undertaking than, say, getting a license, which is ironic. I tell my 17-year-old who's trying to get his driver's license, um, you know, I'll give him tips where he's the student and I'm the teacher, and then I come up to Maine and, and it flips, and then uh, my instructor, Charlie, is giving me the most basic of instructions and wondering whether I'll, I'll pick up on them. But it's, um, uh, there's no need for me to achieve it. It's not for professional. I'm not going to get a commercial rating. Um, it's a matter of, I think, committing to the process and knowing that over time I will cross the obstacles and get my private pilot license. So as we were sitting here eating pancakes here at Spurwing Farm and having a great time, you are talking about how you're learning and how your flying is a little different than your ground studies. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I think I've fallen into the, um, the, 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 the trap of believing that making progress in the air and the dexterity with, with operating the airplane and the degree of comfort in takeoffs, landings, and, and different ground maneuvers has uh, given me more progress than I have. What I've read is a lot of people do this, and there's an equal, if not greater, uh, importance to understanding the, the books and understanding charts and being able to you know, operate safe in a VFR environment. And so that's an area where I do have to remind myself time needs to not only be equal but actually greater on that side to ensure that it's not just you know, having fun flying but that I'm safe and I'm keeping other people safe by understanding everything that's expected of me. So the experiential learning is coming a little easier than the book learning? It is, and I, I prefer it, and so that's why I think I've, I've leaned towards it. Well, because when you're book learning, you're not up in the air, and obviously you love being in the air. That, that's very true. So have you set any goals? When do you plan to have this complete? Do you have any idea at this point? And what are you flying? Uh, I'm flying a, a Piper Cherokee Warrior, and the next step on my journey is um, cross-country. And um, so I, I'm trying not to put a date necessarily of when I think it's going to happen. Um, I'm not looking at the minimum number of hours in the air as any sort of a, a, a guidebook to when I ought to have it, because I think that the, the goal is safety and um, and proceeding when it makes sense. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna punt on the question of as to when I'll get it, but I can I can certainly reach out and let you know when I do. I certainly hope you do. That would be great, Sean. I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the Airplane Geeks podcast, and best of luck. And I hope by this time next year that you'll be flying in as opposed to driving down. Looking forward to that as well. Thanks, Micah. A little airplane noise as another aircraft departs from Spurwink Farm, but we're here and we're talking with Jim Tate, who's a controller in the Portland Tower, but we met under some strange circumstances. Jim, you just came up to me and said you're Micah, but how did you know I was Micah? Well, well, I remember what you look like, which I guess is good because it was 30 years ago, so pretty proud that I remembered that. And Micah's a pretty unique name, so I said, well, what the heck, I'll take a chance and ask him. Well, what it was is that 
Jim said, did you used to be on Maine Public Radio? And I said, yes, I'm sorry. And uh, apparently we knew each other from back in the days when I was doing folk music. A little bit before I was an official airplane geek. It was still with small letters back then. Jim, how long have you been working at the Portland Tower? So actually I'm retired. I've been retired five years. But I worked there almost 30 years. I started out in Lawrence Airport, small airport outside of Boston. And then I came to Portland, and then that's where I stayed until I retired. And what got you into ATC in the first place? My, actually, my uncle was a pilot for Delta Airlines during the glory days of being a commercial airline pilot, when people used to dress up to go on uh, commercial flights. And uh, so he, he had a great career. And he told all his, well, he told his kids, and he told all his, like, nephews and nieces, hey, you should be going to this air traffic control. It's a pretty good job. And nobody took him up on it. And, uh, and I was, like, trying to figure out what to do. And I visited a tower and saw what they did and said, that seems pretty cool to me. So that's how I felt. I just fell into it. I had no aviation background whatsoever. So just kind of fell into it by accident. And after that accidental find of a job, how did you feel about it? Did you get involved in aviation and, and, and love the aviation, or did you just love the job, or was it just something that you ended up doing? I, I, I can honestly say I love the job, and I, as a controller, you kind of see the, uh, <laughs> you see like the bad side of aviation, and especially in a small airport like Lawrence, you see a lot of like near misses and things. So, so pilots are like, "Oh my God, that guy's crazy." So I didn't want, never wanted to go up in a small airplane actually when I started out controlling. But you gain an appreciation for it, and uh, but the job was great. It suited my personality. Um, so it was a great career. I'm, I was very, very, very lucky to have found it. It was a great career. And how did? How did that change, you know, from the Lawrence Airport where you saw those strange GA things going on to moving to Portland that's more mid-sized and a lot more commercial traffic? Yes, much more controlled. The best training I ever had was at Lawrence because it was so wide open, almost like here at the fly-in. It's just you have binoculars, you have a pad of paper, and it's kind of they check in and, you you, you know, you, it's kind of controlled chaos. And uh, so you learn... You learn to think on your toes real quick, and then you go to a place like Portland where they have radar, and everybody has a transponder, and it's much more controlled. So the hard part about it was you're mixing, not as much nowadays, but back then you were mixing so many small airplanes with large airplanes and the different speeds and the jets, and and that could be very challenging. Currently... There's a lot of controversy and a lot of news going on about ATC and the problems with ATC in terms of how they aren't enough people around and how they're causing all these traffic delays. And it's an argument with the airlines saying it's all ATC and ATC, which from my perspective is saying the right thing, that's saying it's your scheduling and it's the weather and it has nothing to do with us. As a retired air traffic controller, what do you think about all that and, and what opinions would you give us? Well... I can speak from experience. So I got my job because Reagan, remember when Reagan fired all the controllers. So that created this huge need for controllers. So they hired for like three years to fill that hole. So I was part of that. Then that whole group that all got hired at the same time, they all retired at the same time, created another hole. Well, I've been retired five years now. So they filled that hole. So when they say there's not enough controllers... That's a lie. 
as far as I'm concerned. Now, again, I'm not there right now, although I still have friends in the tower. But when they're better staffed now than they have been in 10 years. So you're never going to control the weather. People think, you know, they think we can conquer. If it's bad weather, that trumps everything. You're going to have delays if it's bad weather. And the busy airports are overscheduled. The airlines have too many flights. And it'll go well if the weather's good. If everything breaks right, you won't have delay. But all it takes is, you know, one weather system, and it could be on the East Coast, it's going to affect your flight going to California, and it's that ripple effect, right? And it just all snowballs, and then that's why everyone tells you, if you're going to take a commercial flight, fly first thing in the morning. <laughs> um, that's what I was just going to say. That's why you always fly first thing, because it's going to snowball, it's going to delay, and once there's a one-hour delay on one end, it's a two-hour delay on the next leg, and it goes on and on and on and builds. So let me ask you this. It's been five years since you retired. If you needed to right now, first let's look at what's going on here. We have an air boss. we got some people offering guidance. Could you pick up a microphone and do it all over again right now? <laughs> That's a good question. I'd like to think that I was very good at my job. However, I was better at my job when I was 32 years old than when I was 52 years old. And now that I'm 61 and been out of it for five years, I'm not kidding anybody to think that I could just jump in there and, you know, be as good as I was. I'd do all right, you know, but no, it's, it's, a, it's a young person's game. And that's why they have a mandatory retirement. And I always joke about the FAA. You can, you can criticize a lot about the FAA, but the, the mandatory retirement age, they got that one right. <laughs> so, based on your experience and what's happening now and what you see in the news, is ATC still a good place for people to work? And if somebody wanted to work there, what advice would you give them? I, th- I still think it's a good job. It's a good career. It's, they always change, like, how they hire people, which is kind of confusing. And now... I don't even know what it is right now, but for a while there, they were requiring people to get a degree from a college, which I think is the biggest scam ever because you get a degree in air traffic control. doesn't mean you're going to get hired by the FAA. And then if you do get hired, doesn't mean you're going to pass the training and get checked out and become a controller. So I think that was doing a big disservice. When I was hired, I had a general college degree. You took an entrance exam. And then it was. Then you went to training in Oklahoma City, and 50% of the people would wash out there. So it was a pretty good indicator of if you could make it through there, chances are you'll get to your facility and you'll get checked out, which is what happened with me. But um, so yeah, as long as people go in it with their eyes open, and I always, if I, a young person says to me, I want to be a controller, I say go in the military, join the military, get into air traffic control there, they'll train you. You can, you'll have a job. You can go work for the DOD. I, I don't know if a lot of people realize that Pease Airport, that's a DOD, Department of Defense Tower. So if you, you, know, you can have a job without ever getting hired by the FAA. I mean, you still try to get hired by the FAA, but you have that option too. So. And then, you know, you have all the military benefits and everything else. You don't have all this college debt. So that's, that's my advice. Same thing with a pilot. I tell people that I want to be a commercial pilot to go in the military. You know, let, let them pay for it because to, to, to do the training, it costs a tremendous amount of money. And there's a big shortage of pilots right now. So. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the Airplane Geeks to talk with us. And we appreciate your opinions, and I, I think it's good advice. Thank you, Micah. Great to see you again. Thanks a lot.
So we're talking with Seth Whitten, who I met last year here at the Spurwing Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In. But this year, as the plane goes by, he's a recent high school graduate with his PPL. So when did you get that, and what are you flying these days? Uh, so I got the PPL uh, last October uh, when I was 17 in a Cessna 150 out of Oxford. Uh, it's recently been sold, so I'm now flying a 152 in Auburn. That's great. And you also have this amazing job. Tell us a little bit about where you're working and how you got that job. Uh, so right now I'm working for Northeast Air on the line, uh, mainly just the GA traffic coming in and out, which has just been really fun. It's a lot of military stuff. Uh, you know, the occasional celebrity and uh, interesting people to meet. Airplane. Uh, so I got the job by a reference from a flight instructor who um, referenced, he was uh, friends of the manager at Northeast Air or for the GA stuff. So he helped set me up with the de-icing job uh, this winter. So when I was in high school, or at the end of the senior year, I would, uh, you know, school during the week. And then on the weekends, I would de-ice. And then, so hang on a sec. For our listeners who may not be familiar, Northeast Air is the biggest FBO at PWM, Portland Jetport, where we know our good friend Paul Bradbury is, works as a director. But Northeast Air is the biggest FBO. And so you were in high school and got this job there. And for this past winter, you were de-icing planes at Northeast Air? Yeah, it was honestly, it was um, it was a lot more fun than I expected. It was um, it was just fun to get up early, you know, watch the sunrise and uh, just, you know, spray these planes down and get to see all these different types of airplanes coming through, different liveries, and just learning a lot about the aircraft itself. So you would get up at like 3 in the morning to get to Northeast Air and, and de-ice and then go to school? Yeah, so I lived um, I lived 45 minutes away from the jet port, so I would wake up at 3 uh, to be there for 4.30, and then uh, I basically we'd spray in the morning a lot of times, frost shots and whatnot, and then most of the time you're waiting on standby. So when I was on standby, I'd do my homework for my classes on the weekends. So it was a good system that worked out. That is incredible dedication. Now, you may not be an airplane geek with capital letters for the podcast, but you are definitely an airplane geek with small letters. And so tell us a little bit about how you became an airplane geek. Uh, so I guess the, how I became, it was um, I have an uncle who I is six years older than me who I've watched uh, go through the Air Force Academy as he's pursuing uh, the fighter jet route. And that sort of got me pretty interested. And then um, I know through like Instagram and watching videos, of uh, like accounts like Fly with Owen uh, got me really interested in flying, and then uh, one day I just I was really I never it never like clicked to me that uh, I could be a pilot, and then I was doing a career quiz like an online career quiz, and it came with the result of airline pilot, and that was like when it clicked, and I was just like I just got excited right there, and I was looking it up, and from there I just like slowly pursued you know this discovery flight, and then uh, now on to flight school this fall. That's wonderful. So. You got your PPL, your VFR, you're going to flight school. Tell us a little bit about the flight school you chose and why. Uh, so the flight school I chose is called Buiki Aerospace in Kissimmee, Florida. So I um, went down to Sun and Fun this spring with the intention of looking for a flight school uh, to go to. And 
uh, we sort of talked to all the big ones, you know, the names that everyone knows, and then a lot of the small ones. And um, I, what really struck me about this place was how friendly the staff were. We talked, um, so like right there at the booth, the owner of the flight school was there. He greeted us. He was friendly. He offered free discovery flights. So we went the next day to free discovery flights, and everybody there was just so nice. And then when he showed us the numbers, I mean, they were just doing it uh, a lot cheaper than a lot of the other places. I think the price combined with uh, just how friendly the staff was, it just seems like a place where I think I can really um, grow as a pilot. So what will you be learning down there at the flight school? What's the plan? Uh, so the plan is coming in with a private um, to do, get my instrument through CFI, and then I'll turn around and s- instruct for them, uh, most likely in their Puerto Rico location because they're the largest flight school in Puerto Rico right now. And uh, they're desperate for CFIs, so I'll probably head down there afterwards. And then working as a CFI, what do you plan on doing after that? What's, what's the end goal? Do you have one yet? There's a lot of different possibilities. Yeah, definitely a lot of possibilities. So I've always, I don't know, I thought the GA stuff was as cool as the airlines, you know, flying uh, like corporate or whatnot. But um, recently I've had a lot of people tell me that I really just, I need to go for the airlines as quick as possible. And uh, I think that's probably going to be end up what happening what, what happens when I get my fifteen hundred hours. Uh, most likely, looking to fly for like the mainline carriers would be nice. So, let me ask you this, and it's a tough question. And if you don't want to answer, just say so. You got your fifteen hundred hours. The airlines are desperate for pilots, as we know. You have your choice. Who would you pick, and why? Uh, I think I'd, I'd pick United, just because um, I. I don't know why. I just I really like the um, I really like the company. And then my first uh, my first instructor was a United pilot, so he would show me the, um, some like flight logs and whatnot, and tell me about uh, his experience flying with United. I think that just really, I just from there, it just kind of became my favorite airline. That's a perfectly good choice and a great explanation of why. But let me ask you this, because I'm sure you follow the news and you see what's going on. United is currently having trouble finding first officers that want to move into the left seat and and move in, and be able to take command. It's just one of those things that's going on right now. So a lot of first officers like being high-level first officers. And you would obviously start as a first officer. That's how it happens. Even though you know, we know United recruits all captains, everybody that they hire as a pilot can be a captain. What would you want right now? Do you have the intention of getting into that left seat? Yeah, definitely. I feel like uh, the left seat would be the end goal if I was in airlines. Um, I think just the left seat and then just uh, as soon as possible, just I get that seniority and get, uh, you know, those uh, long international routes to different uh, unique locations and just uh, enjoy it. Yeah. And let me ask you this. You're going to be getting, you know, getting into your CFI and, and working as a CFI probably in Puerto Rico. Are you going to pursue some other educational opportunities as well? Yeah, so uh, I'm looking at the options like Purdue Global. Uh, I know Embry-Riddle does a global option as well. And uh, Liberty University does an online thing. So what they do is uh, they'll transfer your flight credits and they'll count as college credits. So then you can do your online, uh, it's an online college basically, but you'll have uh, all those licenses that you got or certificates will count as college credits. So you can do this bachelor's degree in like two to three years online school. And since I can't even get my ATP until I'm 23, unless I have a bachelor's, because if you have a bachelor's and you apply for the restricted, 21, uh, I think I just, you know, I'll divide my workload between CFI and the college. 
so I can hopefully have a bachelor's and the 1,500 hours by the time I'm 21. Seth, it's so nice to talk to somebody that has things so well planned out and is working so hard to get it. And I know we only just met last year, and we don't know each other particularly well, but I'm really proud to know you. And thank you so much for being a guest here on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is awesome. Thanks to Hillel and Micah. Good interviews. Well, next week we're back with the other geeks and an industry guest. Our website is airplanegeeks.com. And our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. 